in the hobby. It's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking that we could pull, I don't know, Hall of Famer. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com. The only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy slab packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. There is nothing more fun than opening an Arena Club slab pack. I mean, it is so much better than any mystery pack that I've ever purchased because there is a focus on transparency. There is a display of available cards. There are hit rates you can get. When you're graded, you're given a rationale. It is the marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, and displaying. Arena Club Slab Packs are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your pulls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling. You can have them officially graded by Arena Club. The Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent, with a full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. Whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform you have to check out. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash badmoney. Wow, that's a crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack, that's $40 right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash badmoney for 10% off your first purchase. I love to track progress. As you guys know from listening to this show, I'm constantly tracking my progress. What have we done so far in 2024? And spring is in full bloom. Are your finances blooming too? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities for lower rates on loans like for a car or a home. You can use it everywhere Visa credit cards are accepted. That's right, you can build your credit using your own money. Get paid up to two days early with direct deposit. With a qualifying direct deposit, you can get access to your money sooner. Fee-free overdraft with SpotMe. Overdraft up to $200 without fees with SpotMe when you set up a qualified direct deposit. Just set up a qualifying direct deposit, sign up for SpotMe, and Chime will spot you up to your limit when you make a credit card purchase or cash withdrawal that exceeds your balance. Access 60,000 plus fee-free ATMs. That's more than the top three national banks combined. Easily find one near you with the Chime app. Send and receive money. Use Chime to pay anyone, Chime members or not, and cash out your money fee-free. With Chime's secure credit card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started at Chime.com slash bad money. That's Chime.com slash bad money. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. Hey guys, stay tuned after the interview for our segment, Dear Gabby. Today, someone writes in to talk about the ethics of saving extra money during a crisis such as this pandemic. Someone else writes in to talk about a system they use with their partner to distribute their money into shared and personal accounts. It's super cute. It's such good advice that my partner, when I was listening to the edit of the episode, stopped and said, this is really good advice. And someone else shares feedback that may be my favorite thing ever written about the show. You got problems that you ought to be concerned with. Moolah. You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. 
keep it You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret But you're not the only one Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun Now your healing has begun It's bad with money with Gabby Dunn Hello, I'm Gabby Dunn and this is Bad With Money Here's a word I can't believe I'm saying on this show in 2021 GameStop GameStop is an electronics retail company that is most known for its brick-and-mortar stores. Maybe there was even one in your local mall growing up. There was one in mine. In 2021, in case you're listening to this show as a time capsule, GameStop shockingly became one of the most talked-about stocks on Wall Street because of a Reddit forum called Wall Street Bets. As the New York Times headline on January 28, 2021 put it, GameStop shares have soared 1,700% as millions of small investors egged on by social media employ a classic Wall Street tactic to put the squeeze on Wall Street. It was a short squeeze. If you don't know what that means, neither did I. I'll do my best to explain. Big hedge fund investors employed by rich people borrow shares, and sell them with the reasonable assumption that the stock price will remain what they expect it always has been or as they have always predicted it to be. Quote, they can buy the stock at a lower price and keep the difference, wrote Stan Cho in a January 28th AP News article. Quote, GameStop is one of the most heavily shorted stocks on Wall Street, end quote. But then, oh, but then. Smaller investors on Reddit and beyond banded together and bought huge quantities of GameStop stock, which pushed the price higher and higher, and basically a lot of wealthy people lost money they'd put into hedge funds. It seemed like a big move for collective power. As Cho wrote in their piece, quote, Lately it's been more about inflicting pain on short sellers, hedge funds, and other big financial firms. Many talk about it in terms of evening the ledger with the financial elite who benefited from years of gains as other people fell further behind. Opinions are split on the GameStop revolution, even in this episode. I personally found it hilarious and good. And in the end, it did get more and more average citizens interested and excited by the stock market. Suddenly, it felt empowering rather than overwhelming. Suddenly, we weren't being left out. We were in charge. And obviously, it's debatable if this has lasted or will last, but to me, it seemed like a fun educational step. Our guest today is Sarah Glakis, who I found out about from an April 2020 New York Times article by Joshua Brockman about women, a group usually left out of conversations about the stock market, quote, reclaiming their power through investing. It is curious to have this piece written by presumably a man, but okay. In 2011, Glakis co-founded the Austin Women's Investment Group to make up for the ways that Wall Street firms, fund companies, and financial advisors have fallen short when it comes to women. Glakis, an investment advisor and the founder of Black Barn Financial, saw a disconnect between women's priorities, quote, and what the financial services industry offered. The group meets now over Zoom, obviously because of COVID. They share tips, talk about what they don't understand, and empower each other to actually make moves for the future long-term. This episode isn't all about GameStop. It's about the basics of how to invest, when to invest, and the ways in which it's not all the sort of game-playing that happened with GameStop, pun intended. In fact, investing is about the long-term, about retirement, about protecting yourself. 
It doesn't have to be this confusing GameStop silliness, although it can be. But there's so much more to it that Sarah and the women of the Austin Women's Investment Group have taught each other about longer-term, higher-return investments. And we disagree a little about GameStop. (laughs) Sarah, can you tell my audience who you are and what you do? I'm Sarah Glacus. I live in Austin, Texas. By day, I'm the founder of a financial advisory firm called Blackburn Financial, but I also run a meetup group that we're now going on 10 years called the Austin Women's Investing Group. And the Austin Women's Investing Group is, I mean, really, it's just a group of women who like to get together to talk about money and investing and finance in you know, a comfortable, casual, all-female setting. Yeah. So I found you from this incredible April New York Times article that focused on women's investing, but also on the Austin Women's Investment Group. So why did you start the group? My friend Michelle and I really started the group because we were passionate about investing and financial literacy. But we also saw that there was this blind spot that exists in this traditional financial services space. And so we were really trying to create a space that would fill that gap. When we first started the group, there were about 10 of us sitting in my living room and we would you know, run out of spots and have to look for a stool or a milk crate for someone to sit on and people's cats were you know, crawling all over us. But we were just there to get together to talk about whatever financial topics were on people's mind. And then we eventually outgrew the living rooms and we started meeting in the Austin Public Libraries. And this amazing community over the last 10 years, this amazing community has just built itself up around us because we're doing something that people need. And we're trying to bring this very real practical perspective, you know, to our members. So how do you know what to talk about each week? I mean, it has definitely evolved over time. When we first started and we would have, you know, five or 10 people in someone's living room, we would talk about whatever people wanted to talk about. Um, But I think we're at or near 2,400 members and our monthly meetings have somewhere between, you know, 30 and maybe a hundred women. So now we have to be more focused. Now we try to organize our monthly meetings around a topic that, Mm -hmm. you know, myself and the other co-organizers choose. We line up experts or we figure out what the format is and we try to narrow it down for each of our monthly meetings. We're just not, we're not able to be quite as casual about it anymore. So we try to focus in on topics that our members want to hear about. It seems like one of the top topics is investing. So who should invest and when and why is investing important as a thing that I think a lot of people don't focus on? I think from my perspective and from the group's perspective, you know, everyone should invest and always, they should always be investing. (laughs) You know, I I think for our members specifically, you know, that question, why is investing important? You know, across the board, both in the Austin Women's Investing Group and from, you know, some of my my clients, I hear women talking about a common desire and a common fear, and they're kind of intertwined with each other. Mm -hmm. The women I talk to often mention, um, you know, a desire to be independent, to not be constrained by lack of money, to not have to rely on anyone and be able to make decisions for themselves as to how they want to live. And so that part, you know, that desire comes from the idea of treating money like a tool to get what you want. And then on the flip side, you know, the common fear I hear from most women is this very real fear 
of how they're going to pay for caregiving or medical care in retirement or how they'll be able to take care of their parents or take care of their kids because that trend towards higher medical expenses, higher caregiving expenses, the fact that you know women tend to take on the majority of caregiving responsibilities, you know that is standing in the way of a lot of women feeling like they're on this path to independence. Yeah, so I think, you know, one of the interesting things about the article was the way it talked about Wall Street firms and financial advisors sort of have this disconnect between like you said women's priorities generally and then what, you know, is usually emphasized. And also, you know, we've talked about it on the show a bunch where a lot of people don't realize that saving for retirement is actually investing for retirement. Yes. Even people who will say, oh, well, I have investments, but I don't have retirement. And I'd be like, no, 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 that that's what that is. So can you talk about like what is emphasized and then what you saw as like needing to be emphasized in order to make it less confusing for people who aren't being targeted by mainstream investment firms? Yes, I think one of the core needs that the Austin Women's Investing Group meets is this idea of repetition, right? Repetition of the vocabulary and the terminology and the concepts, because we're trying to get people comfortable with the language of investing so that they are more clear as to where they stand today mm-hmm. and more clear as to how to get where they're going. I mean, in the other concept that I'm passionate about and that I try to bring to the group, we talk a lot about how avoiding the riskier parts of the financial markets actually ends up putting women at greater risk Mm -hmm. because over a lifetime, they'll miss out on these amazing effects of compounding, you know, by focusing so much on the emergency fund and the mortgage pay down and the kids' college education, Mm -hmm. you know, women are being steered and guided into these shorter term, lower return investments to the detriment of these longer term, higher return investments that can build great amounts of wealth. Mm -hmm. And because our group is so diverse, we have more experienced investors who chime in during the meeting or during our webinar and offer what they've learned to the members who are just starting down the path to real wealth building. So there's this idea of, I did this, and you can do it too. Here's how. Mm-hmm. Or I didn't do this and I wish I did. Here's what I would have done, you know, if I could go back. Yeah, we love to be honest and talk about mistakes and talk about specific things that we've done in a in a way that is not confusing. I think a lot of times it's set up to sort of keep people at the top who know certain things there and to keep everyone else sort of gate kept out. So yeah, what you were talking about in terms of paying down debts or covering certain emergency savings type things to the detriment of saving for retirement because or investing for retirement because a lot of women think, well, I don't have the money to or they think, you know, I can't do that until I pay down my debts. And I just did an interview with Erin Lowry, who does the Broke Millennial blog, and she was saying that the same thing you were saying that like, yes, paying off all this stuff is is good, but you're missing out on having this money that is compounding. So can you talk a little bit about like what compounding is and, and investor confidence? You know, one of the one of the things we build into meetings now is this, you know, this caveat at the beginning of the meeting. So at the beginning of every meeting, we have people introduce themselves and talk about why they're there, what they're hoping to learn. 
And one of the things that I try to invite the members of our group to think about is to not preface questions with, um, well, I don't know anything about this. Um, Well, I'm not a real investor. You know, I'm coming at this from a place of uh, total ignorance because that's not true. I think you're right the way that especially investment professionals talk about investing and the way we really aren't very good at explaining concepts to people. When you find the people who can explain concepts in a relatively straightforward way, I mean, women are like, oh, yeah, I totally get that. I totally understand what you're saying. Or I'm already doing that. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I love your point about people who are like, well, you know, I'm not investing. I only have this 401k Uh and (laughs) my Roth IRAs, but I'm not, you know, like trading meme stocks or whatever, right? Uh And so this differentiation between what investing is and what investing for retirement is, you know, everyone comes into their relationship with money with their different levels of financial literacy and certainly like with their own money stories. And, you know, people have all different ways of organizing their financial lives. But certainly in the Austin Women's Investing Group, just try to make it this space where women can ask the questions right? The super basic questions. You know, I think I heard one of your episodes where you asked like Sally Krawcheck, you know, what is a stock? Like we get that question all the time in the Austin's Investor Group. And it is a great question, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can ask it over and over again in a group like this because it's a safe space to explore those ideas that you are bringing in, you know, your ideas about money and what you've learned about money and the money stories you learned from your parents or Mm -hmm. your friends and just be able to talk about it in a really open way with, you know, other women who are like you or who aren't like you and can, you know, tell you what the difference is between the way you look at money and the way they look at money. Yeah. So you want to do it again for the new listeners? What is the stock and what is compounding? (laughs) Oh, right. I forgot your compounding question. So what is a stock? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. So (laughs) a, a stock is ownership in a company. And, you know, when we talk about the stock market, we're talking about ownership in companies that already exist that are available for the general public to buy, right? Mm -hmm. So Apple is a publicly traded stock. If you want to be an owner of Apple, you you log in to a brokerage account or your Roth IRA and you buy shares of Apple. And now, boom, you are an owner of Apple. And why it's so important when it comes to compounding is compounding, I love thinking about it as how fast can you double your money? Mm right? The rate at which you can double your money. So just if we look at the past 25 years, 30 years, 50 years, 100 years, the stock market in the aggregate, so like the S&P 500, which is, you know, 500 different U.S.-based companies, you know, you've heard of most of them. So it's that's like a group of the top 500 companies, right? Yes. It's five large, well-known U.S. companies. And Apple is one of those companies. Okay. So this basket of 500 companies, we expect the price of this basket of companies to double every 7 to 10 years. Mm. Right? It's not it's not exact. It's not guaranteed, but it allows me as an investor to say, okay, I have $10,000. What do I want to do with this $10,000? If you want to take advantage of compounding, you can say, okay, I have 30 years until I need this money. So I can turn my 10,000 into 20,000, 40,000, 80,000. Mm-hmm. So should I do that? I mean, 
a lot of people be like, yeah, I should do that. I have 30 years. I want a lot more money. And that's the math of compounding. Right. Right. Turning $10,000 into $80,000. And there are lots of more like complicated ways to to think about it and to run retirement calculators on it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you can kind of like, okay, what would you rather do? Would you rather turn your $10,000 into $80,000? Or would you like to keep your $10,000 super safe? put it in an FDIC insured savings account and get basically 0%. Maybe a little bit, maybe some years you get 1%. Right. You are not going to double your money. You're going to double your money every like 70 years. Then you're going to be dead. So it's... You just feel scared. I think I had to get used to... How do you get used to the idea of, of it kind of going up and down, having the faith that it will end up on top? Yeah, I think the faith that it will end up on top comes from educating yourself Mm -hmm. and just looking back as to how people and families and countries and companies have created wealth for decades and decades and decades, if not centuries. Right. It's ownership in companies that is it's high risk in that you're going to have to withstand the volatility. That means like, what's the stock market going to do today? What's it going to do next year? Like, you don't know. Mm-hmm. No one knows. Don't pretend like you know. But if you look at a bunch of charts, if you look at the chart of the stock market over long periods of time, anyone can eyeball an upward trend, mm-hmm. right? You can see like, okay, if I go all the way back to 1990 or 1980, I can see that there is a strong upward trend with lots of ups and downs in the middle. Mm-hmm. But I think just seeing more of that information will give you the faith. And then how you get used to it is you just have to do it. You just have to get through really horrible times in the stock market, like March of 2020. (laughs) You know, it's like, did you get through it or did you not get through it? If you got through it and you're like, okay, I, you know, I put this money in my retirement account. I'm treating it like a time capsule. Yeah. I don't need it for another 30 years. I can wait this out. Like that's the right way to do it. Right. That's the thing is. You can put in smaller amounts that make you feel more comfortable, like truly, if you just even start with $100, like, or even if you just start really, really small, like we'll talk about micro investing in a second, but because 10,000 might freak people out, but people can start really small. And the idea is that I know it feels safer in a savings account, but it's, it's not going to behoove you in like 40 years. And I just have to remind myself all the time, like obsessively checking if it's up or down because I have anxiety. You have to remind yourself that like if it's down today, that's okay because it's not meant to be something for today. It's meant to be something for when you're like, you know, 65. Right. Exactly. Everyone has to figure this out for themselves. They have to figure out their own risk tolerance. You know, I am an extremely risk tolerant person person. I've been doing this for a long time. It's my profession. I teach classes about it, right? So the day-to-day volatility does not bother me, but I certainly have friends and clients and members of the Austin Women's Investing Group where it does bother them. Mm-hmm. So you have to find the happy medium. And going back to what a stock is, you know, ownership of a company, you know, if you think about those companies, they are producing the goods and services that we hope will solve problems mm-hmm. or the goods and services that we are going to want to consume in the future. Mm-hmm. And in the U.S., the whole system is set up to incentivize companies to generate 
profits, right? To generate, Mm -hmm. to have money left over after they pay everybody else. And as the owner of the company, you're not entitled to, but you have a claim on those profits. So if you think that innovation is alive and well, and that certainly there are companies that are creating problems, right? But there are also companies solving problems. And this is going to be a process that continues over years and decades and centuries. Then participating in the stock market hopefully becomes, you know, maybe not easier, but maybe more palatable. Mm -hmm. For me, it provides a little comfort. So I just have an IRA. I have an IRA and I kind of set it and forget it. So can you talk about the difference between IRA and investing in individual stocks? Because I have, or 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 401k. So I have that. And then I also have my little, my little TD Ameritrade account where I'm just like investing in different airlines. <laughs> <laughs> so what is the difference between like a 401k and an IRA and then investing in individual stocks and, and who does what? So the 401k and the IRA. These are retirement accounts, right? The IRA has the word retirement in it, Mm -hmm. individual retirement account. A 401k is a retirement plan offered through an employer. So it's usually offered as a benefit to employees. Those accounts are just accounts. I kind of think of them like a shoebox, right? Like you have these special shoeboxes that you put money into. And then once that money is in the shoebox, you have to go back and decide what to invest the money in. Mm -hmm. So in a 401k, you're typically given a list of mutual funds to choose from. Your employer says, okay, you can choose from these 40 funds. Here's some stock funds. Here's some bond funds. Here's some international funds. And all of these funds are sort of lumped together in in packages and you you don't really focus on what's individually in each package, although sometimes you you should because sometimes they're investing in guns. But other times, right? Yeah. But mostly, yes. mostly you can sort of be like, okay, these are tried and true. Right. I mean, it, the benefit is diversification. Right. You're being given the option to invest in a fund. That fund invests in hundreds or maybe thousands of stocks instead of just one stock. Your employer feels comfortable offering them to you, like you really can't get into that much trouble. Mm -hmm. And so they tend to be like pretty generic, but effective, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. And so that's typically what those are the investments available to you in your 401k account. Now, with an IRA, which is also a retirement account, and with these retirement accounts, you get basically get tax benefits because... The government has decided that they are going to give you some tax breaks because they want you to save for retirement so that you can take care of yourself in retirement. Mm-hmm. So if you have your 401k with your list of funds that are available to you, you usually have to go in and pick what fund you want. In your IRA, typically you have way more options available to you. Mm-hmm. So where do you have your IRA, Gabby? Is it also at TD Ameritrade or is it somewhere else? Yeah, it is. So your IRA at TD Ameritrade, the money that you put into the IRA, you can log into your account and buy pretty much anything you want inside that IRA account. You can mm-hmm. buy exchange-traded funds, ETFs, which are close cousins to mutual funds, or you can buy individual stocks. Just the whole, the whole point is, is inside that IRA, you're trying to grow that money for retirement. Mm-hmm. 
I actually don't make a differentiation between retirement accounts and the investments, right? Like the, the, the accounts are, again, just they're the shoebox that's holding your money. Mm-hmm. And then you have to go in and invest the money in some investments. But most people do kind of make this differentiation between I have my retirement accounts. I invest them in pretty basic things like mutual funds and exchange traded funds. And then I have this side account. And this side account is where I'm doing something special, right? Like <laughs> investing in meme stocks or, you know, some ideas uh-huh. that you got from your friends or just, you know, some company that you think has a really bright future. So that, in you know, kind of this side account that people, again, with the way that you organize your own financial life, a lot of people will have this side account that maybe is more speculative. Mm-hmm. It's more taking additional risks, like buying one stock, an individual stock. Mm-hmm. When you buy an individual stock, you're taking additional risk because what if that one stock, I mean, just like blows up? I mean, either in a bad way or in a good way. You know, if it, <laughs> it could be the next Apple or it could be the next Enron, right? And uh-huh. you as the investor, it's up to you to be able to figure that part out, right? That's the whole, that's the whole point. But you are taking additional risk by instead of investing in the whole universe of hundreds or thousands of stocks, you're picking this one stock. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you would do that because you think that this one stock is going to do better than all of these other stocks. Yeah, I sort of hedge my bets on both. But I, when COVID started, I started putting a little money into JetBlue and things yeah. like that because I was like, this is going to tank and then it's, I hope it'll come back. Yeah, I mean, I love this because you're thinking about the future of these companies, right? You can, you can, yeah, the story makes sense. Like, okay, these companies are going to have a rough year or maybe a rough two years, but are people going to stop flying on airplanes? Are people going no, to stop traveling? So, no. So how long can you wait? So in 2022, ooh, I'm going to make some money. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to just wait. You have to just, and I and I don't put, I didn't put a lot in because I don't have a lot, you know, to play around with. But I was like, that was my first like little foray into individual stocks because I've been so scared in the past. But I was like, let me take advantage of this. Yeah, I love that. Bad person. <laughs> I mean, th- that's how you learn. Right. I mean, your your next step is going to have to be, do I just keep these forever? Yeah. Right. Or do I exchange them for something else? Maybe do I sell just the airline stocks and go back into something more diversified? Yeah. Or do I jump out of airline stocks into, I don't know, whatever the next idea is. But there is a world in which that airline would have closed and I would have lost that money. And so I... I try to only put, obviously, like this sounds, you know, obvious, but you you should only put in what you're willing to lose. I think that's true when you get into the world of individual stocks. Mm -hmm. Certainly some stocks are at a higher risk of going bankrupt than other stocks. Mm -hmm. With your example of the airlines, yes, like they're is or there was really maybe not so much anymore if we've made it mostly through the hard times but there a year ago there was a very real possibility that one or more of those airlines were just going to go bankrupt they weren't going to be able to pay their bills no one was going to give them more money 
and they were just going to have to close up shop. So that was a real risk that you took there, right? With the expectation that if there wasn't a worst case scenario, you would be able to buy companies when they were relatively cheap and wait until they were able to recover. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's what investing is, right? It's It's trying to figure out what's going to happen in the future, what companies are going to make it, and even better, what companies are going to make it, which ones are going to thrive in the future and invest in those. Right. So you mentioned tax deductions, which is a thing people should look into. And then I think people worry about like, you can always take the money out. Now with like a 401k or an IRA, I think there's penalties. But with individual stocks, if you're like scared, you can take them out, right? Sure. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) I feel like sometimes people feel like, oh, I put my money into a stock and now I did a bad and it's gone. Got it. Got it. No, I mean, really, like when it comes down to it, like whatever money you invest, you can sell whatever you invested in right. at whatever price someone's willing to give you at that specific moment in time. Right. So you're, you're not necessarily going to get back what you put in. You might get more or you might get less. Right. Because prices are always changing. And if you, if you sell your investments in your 401k or your IRA, and then you withdraw that money from that account you will almost certainly have to pay some amount of taxes and some amount of penalty. Right, right, right. Because the IRS is like, listen, if you put this money in, you need to leave it in there. It's for your retirement. You have to wait till you're 59 and a half or we're going to ding you. Mm -hmm. They actually waived those penalties last year with the coronavirus. They waived them just for one year, for 2020. But now they're back. Makes sense. They're back on for 2021. Okay, so what do you think about micro-investing apps? Are we talking about like Robinhood and um, Acorns? Acorn. What about other apps for investing? Yeah. Are those the hot ticket? Yeah. I mean, I think the apps are good if it puts investing on your radar. I mean, and I'm going to differentiate here between investing for the long term uh-huh. and speculating, which is more like gambling. Uh-huh. So I am not a huge fan of the gamification of investing, right? Mm-hmm. This might because I don't. Maybe I'm too old. Maybe I'm like too <laughs> proper. I don't know. But I think that you can get sucked into this trap that investing is about putting a hundred dollars in, buying a stock today, and then selling it to someone else for one hundred and fifty dollars tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And it's just a cycle that just like keeps going. And people think like, oh, this is how you do it, right? You you just kind of keep churning these stocks. You keep buying and selling and buying and selling. And you're always looking for the next thing to buy, the next thing to sell. It requires certainly more time, probably more money. And the stock market, you know, studies have shown in the short term, if we're looking at the day to day, the stock market movements are random. Right. So it's basically a coin flip as to whether there's a, a, mm. a book by Burton Malkiel called A Random Walk Down Wall Street. It's kind of one of the seminal books on investing. So if you are day trading, you are not putting the odds in your favor because it's basically a coin flip as to whether the stock market's going to be up or down tomorrow. So if that's your time horizon, you're just, I mean, that's what gambling is, right? Like yeah. 50 50, maybe it's up, maybe it's down. 
whatever, right? Easy come, easy go. No, and I love and I love gambling. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It was so I, I like am vague. I'm in trouble in Vegas. And as soon as I started with my own individual stocks, I was like, it's <laughs> so bad. I mean, but you know that about yourself. How important yep. is that? You know that. And it actually sounds like the the way you've created and organized your financial life is you have your retirement accounts, which are like properly diversified and in there for mm-hmm. the long term. And you have kind of maybe carved out something on the side. Yeah. Very small. Very small. Yes. Very small. That lets you, I don't know, like indulge that part of your personality. Uh-huh. But investing is for the long term. Speculating, you know, aka gambling is for the short term and is not really an effective way to build wealth over time. Yeah. Just like that, that 50-50 coin flip nature of the stock market will eventually mm-hmm. kind of eat you alive, right? Like most people don't make money day trading over the long run. Okay. So this is a message that we got that said, hi, I listened to your Bad With Money podcast, and I would like to take a moment to direct your attention to the GameStop movement and Wall Street bets on Reddit if you aren't already watching. We are doing a financial activism and betting against hedge funds. It's sort of a good time I think you might enjoy. They know me. It's empowered so many women to get their own stock portfolio, and we are using that collective power to do cool things. I'd love to see your journalism skills covering this phenomenon. I think you'd understand it much better than the folks at CNBC who have been talking about us. CNBC is uh, my known enemy. Thank you for everything you do. They don't know about me, but I know about them. I look forward to the new season of the pod. I'm just kidding. They do know about me and we are enemies. That's a joke. So yeah. So can you explain like what happened with GameStop and who was on top of that and how did they, they do it? Wow. That is a really good question. Okay. So with GameStop... GameStop started as a long-term investment thesis back, I think, in 2018. There was this guy, his real name is Keith Gill. He's actually been called before Congress. But Keith Gill, aka Roaring Kitty, is one of his names, or Deep Effing Value, I think is his Reddit handle. Cool. And on the, the Reddit Wall Street Bets thread, he laid out this thesis for why the company GameStop was undervalued, right? So GameStop as a company, right? They have brick and mortar stores. Uh, They sell like video gaming Mm -hmm. equipment, things like that. And he did this whole analysis of the company and said, hey, we think that this company, or I think that this company is actually worth more than what it is currently being priced at in the market. And this is kind of a long time ago, right? Several years ago. That thesis picked up steam, right? You had other people look at his analysis and they're like, oh, this is pretty good. We do think this company, if right now the people are valuing it at $20 per share, we think it could be worth $100 per share, right? Based Mm -hmm. on the way it does business. So based on its business model and how it could generate profits in the future. And then, you know, last year in 2020, 2021, I feel like... It turned into something different from that original idea. The original idea was this is an investment and it morphed like via this kind of Reddit army into, man, this is a way for us to stick it to all of the hedge funds who don't think this company is worth as much as what the market says it is. So 
kind of the way this all set up was you had hedge funds. Hedge funds can, if you own something and you expect to, and you expect that stock, let's say, to go up in value, that's called being long. So I'm long a stock. Mm-hmm. If you bet against the price of a stock and you want to make money if the price of a stock goes down, that's called being short. So you had hedge funds who were short GameStop. They were betting that the price of the stock would go down and they would lose money if the price of the stock went up. And then you had the Reddit army who said, hey, let's see if we can all band together and force the price of this stock up by a coordinated effort and we can all make money and the hedge funds will lose money and it'll be great, right? Uh And that's kind of what happened. You know, at the end of February, you had this concerted effort with people just kind of joining the crowd and saying, okay, we're going to buy as many shares of GameStop as we can. If we are buying, you know, just because of supply and demand, the price goes up. If the price goes up, then the hedge funds that bet against GameStop, they will lose money because they, you know, their bets are that the price is going to go down. And it turned into this like real-time grudge match between, you know, Wall Street institutions, hedge funds versus the little guy. At least that's like how it was framed. Oh, wow. So wait, just quickly, what is a hedge fund? I I mean, a hedge fund is basically a company. It's a legal entity that's set up to bring in money from outside investors. And those outside investors have to be accredited investors or qualified investors. They have to be rich people or institutions. They send their money to a fund and the fund can basically invest that money however they want. Okay. There are lots of rules around how companies that deal with the general public or retail investors, like I have to follow a lot of rules. I'm a registered investment advisor. Mm -hmm. And so there are certain things that I'm not supposed to do because my clients are regular people. Mm -hmm. But if you're rich enough, you can give your money to a hedge fund and have them invested on your behalf. And those hedge funds kind of have carte blanche to do whatever they want. So they can do esoteric trading strategies. You can be long, you can be short, you can invest in tiny little pockets of the investing world. You can invest in very strange things. So there's like way more strategies, but they're for rich people. Got it. (laughs) So, okay. So you said that that's how it was framed, little guy versus big guy. Was that accurate? I don't have any real world experience with this, right? Like I'm not on Reddit. I'm not covering Wall Street bets. While it was happening, the people that I talked to who were participating in it, the feedback I kept getting was that this was like a social movement. Mm -hmm. And that they they knew they were going to lose money eventually. Mm-hmm. So it's this idea like you just keep buying something and pushing the price up and up and up. How long does that continue to happen? Right. Does it go up to infinity? Right. It wasn't to make money. It was to take money away from the hedge funds is my understanding. Yes. Which I guess is fine if that's what you want to do. I mean, I imagine it just like lighting your dollars on fire. Like to make a stand. It's a little funny. <laughs> right. I, I mean, and that's like, this is the part, like if you're doing it as like a social movement or a joke or to see what happens, 
I think that's fine for the people who know that that's what they're doing. But every time something like this happens, it starts out with some smart guys who are just doing it for a laugh. And it ends up with someone's grandma hears from their grandson that she should buy GameStop. And she buys at $400 a share. Mm -hmm. And the next day it goes to $100 and she lost Mm -hmm. so much of her investment. And I think, I mean, and that's what happened. Someone was buying at the top of this artificially inflated bubble. I mean, purely artificial. I mean, everybody, you know, at least who was in the know knew that they were doing this on purpose to punish someone. But what about all of the people who didn't know, who weren't in on the joke, Mm -hmm. right? You had a lot of people who got in on the frenzy and bought at the top and either sold, you know, as it just very, very, very quickly lost value. And how do you make that up? Yeah. Right. So I appreciate, I think, what the letter says. I don't think it's responsible investing and real people get hurt. And maybe some of those hedge funds got hurt temporarily. Yeah. But I think that act like real normal people, you know, maybe got hurt with money that they couldn't afford to lose. That's my fear. Yeah. I think as a social movement, it seems great. I think it was this really cool, at least this listener and my takeaway from the the letter was that it got people interested in Wall Street. It got people aware of the power they could have collectively. It got people to be more active in terms of betting against hedge funds. And I think it took a lot of people who wouldn't normally know about or care about this type of thing or understand how it could be social activism to understand that it's social activism. And so I think if it got you aware of creating your own stock portfolio in a way that you like felt ostracized or you felt alienated from before, you know, the idea of someone saying this is a good time when you previously would have been like, this is a slog. I think is a pretty big change, especially like you said, you know, hedge funds are are mostly for rich people. And I think people just think that investing is for rich people or that like being aware of the stock market is for rich people. So I do like that it it, it's like a phenomenon that I think changed who who felt empowered by this. It was nice to see people sort of be like, oh, this isn't something that's happening to me. Like the stock market isn't something that's happening to me. It's something that like I can be a part of. And and if the GameStop thing was like, you know, a one-off or a way to do like activism and that's what you want to keep doing, that like seems cool. But also if it got you into the idea of like, okay, so now I should, maybe I should be paying attention to this. Maybe I should, maybe this is a way that I can, can make money. People probably never even heard of this, especially I think young people who never even thought that the stock market was for them. I think it was a cool opening, but I guess they're calling it game stonk now. So if you're interested, listeners, <laughs> go go look at it and you decide if it's a, a fad or a, or a bad idea. And I mean, it's something that could happen again, but it is mostly just, I think, like a not a thing where you're going to make money long term the way you would with like an IRA, but just like if you if you want to have the aforementioned good time. 
Right. And I love what you said about like kind of this democratization of investing. Yeah. That is, you know, the Robin Hood, uh, Reddit, meme investing phenomenon is not one that I saw coming this year. And so when it really blew up at the beginning of this year in 2021, I mean, I, I think like you, like the thinking like, okay, if the apps or these Reddit threads or meme investing are what put investing on people's radar, mm-hmm. that is a good thing. Like, is this a jumping off point to say there's more I can learn? You know, maybe I try this this meme investing Mm -hmm. trading thing for a while and then maybe I move on to something else. Right. That Mm -hmm. like whatever. Yeah. Whatever catches your interest and leads to more people getting more involved is only good for the system. And no one feels bad for the hedge funds that got caught up in it. Like no, no one feels bad. is sad for them, right? <laughs> it's fine. You don't have like... You'll be fine. You win some, you lose some, right? <laughs> but but I think you're right that like that is what is good coming out of, you know, the apps on the phone and mm-hmm. and things like this GameStop or GameStop phenomenon. So I guess my last question is, where can people find the most reliable advice or information? Is it, as you said, with your Austin Women's Investment Group, it's like amongst each other, especially like for, for women or marginalized people? Is that what you found? Yes. I mean, I think all humans need trusted advisors in their life, right? Like it's the community that we build around us and the network that we build around us. And those people, those trusted advisors don't have to be professionals. You know, they can be. But I think I found while watching people go through this in the Austin Women's Investing Group that if you start out gathering information, you know, like your podcast does, like you're asking people to tell you their money stories and you're listening for themes and you're not looking for a roadmap on exactly how to do this. You're trying to gather as much information from the people around you so that you can put together your own plan in your head. What is going to work for you? I mean, and that's what the Austin Women's Investing Group does. It's getting women together in a room to talk about money because you can pull from other people's stories and come up with your own, with your own plan. And so if you start out gathering information from trusted sources, mm-hmm. and then I think the next step is building a network of like-minded people. Maybe it's a formal thing, well, semi-formal thing, like the Austin Women's Investing Group. Or I just talked to a group in Houston where um, seven or eight women who went to college together formed their own group. And they gave themselves a name and they get together every month to talk about investing, right? And so it's just surrounding yourself with like-minded people so that you get, I mean, seven heads are better than one when it comes to this, Mm -hmm. right? You just get through so much more information so much quicker. and then. I don't, maybe you end up looping in a professional once you reach your limit, like how far you can go. But I think it's really important to develop your own plan first, you know, starting broad and then really like drilling down to how you invest and what's important to you. Is stability more important than maximizing returns or are maximizing returns more important or is it important to generate income? Is it important to uh, travel or to retire early. I mean, that those are all the things that are non-financial, mm-hmm. right? They're very personal. So I think that that's like, that's where you start is building that community. And then, I mean, it helps all of us, right? If we're all bringing each other along, like the women and 
marginalized communities who don't have access to this information and don't necessarily have these conversations around the dinner table, let's just start having the conversations and pull everyone along with us. Yeah, I think that's why there's some really great specifically like for Black women podcasts, like this network has brown ambition, like certain things like that. I found in my research, if you find like-minded or people from similar cultural backgrounds, you'll probably have a lot more to share with each other. Yes. So where can people find out more about you and about the Austin Women's Investment Group? Yeah, the Austin Women's Investing Group, we're on Meetup. So if you just search for Austin Women's Investing Group, we'll pop up. (laughs) Now, you know, we have all of our meetings, you know, on Zoom these days. So we're kind of the everywhere women's investing group now. So we're not, (laughs) you know, bound by geography anymore. Um, So we would love to have just anyone who wants to talk to other women about investing, listen to other women speak about investing, kind of try to get through this together. You can find us on Meetup. We have a Facebook group, so you can join us on our Facebook group as well. And then, you know, for me personally, if anyone had any questions about either starting their own investing group or had any questions, you can find me at blackburnfinancial.com. Amazing. Thank you so much, Sarah. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So, so fun. Like we've said many times on this show, the status quo benefits from keeping us isolated. And one of the biggest ways we can fight back is simply to talk to each other. Welcome to Dear Gabby. We're going to read some listener emails. You can email me at gabbyisbadwithmoney at gmail.com. You can also call into our hotline, 844-474-4040, and leave a voicemail. So today on Dear Gabby, we're going to read an email from a listener. Hello. Writing in response to the request for stories about the pandemic and money. Good. I asked for stories and you have provided. I thought I'd share an ethical dilemma because of the economic devastation from the pandemic that's been weighing on me about proceeding with a financial plan I had recently started. To keep the background short, multi-generational deadbeat here who's always been bad with money, mix of family legacy, depression, neurodivergent issues, string of unfortunate events, etc., I finally started getting my shit together this year, inspired a lot by your podcast that I found back in December, January. Aw, thank you. And then hit a series of fortunate events, yearly bonus, raise, and finished paying off my car, that were all allowing me to ease financial stress, rebuild a 401k I cleared out to leave a bad marriage last summer, and start investing to build some financial security that I never had. Woo, right? Well... All these things happened almost the exact same week as my state went into lockdown because of COVID-19. I'm fortunate enough that my job and income aren't being impacted, so there's nothing to stop me from continuing my plan. If anything, this shows how important it is to have money saved up in case next time I'm not so fortunate. And with the low markets, it's a great time to put any extra in long-term investments like my 401k that I have 30 years to allow to rebound. So I should stay the course. But I'm having a crisis of conscience about if continuing with the plan is ethical slash moral. Feels like profiting over the economic suffering of others from this deadly illness. Yes, there's donations, supporting local businesses, helping out people close to me, all that I've been trying to do, the same as others I know in the same situation as me. But like a lot of people who aren't being negatively impacted, being home is actually having a positive effect. And there's a lot of people who are finding ways to build up reserves with extra money on top of those things. 
And it's making me wonder, where's the line between that being financially responsible versus just capitalistically greedy? Anyway, that's what I've been grappling with and had been thinking about sending that idea to you anyway when I heard the promo for the upcoming season this week asking for these stories. Hope I kept it short enough. Stay safe, Blanca. So this is probably a similar situation to maybe a lot of you in that it is hard to come to terms with what is ethical and what is moral and what is the reality of needing money and the reality of the capitalist situation we find ourselves in. Um, We actually are going to have an episode that is going to touch on this, which will be about sort of landlords and the ethics of owning property and the ethics of the relationship between landlords and tenants. Over the years that I've been doing this show, it's been really hard to find the balance between being one of those shows that's just like, here's how you invest and here's how you do these things, you know, like we just did, and also not deviating from the idea that this is a social justice show. So you are thinking about these things. You aren't just being capitalistically greedy in my mind because you're even self-aware and conscious of your privilege and the place that you're in right now. So I have never really been able to find that answer for myself. I feel very connected to this email. If you are in a similar situation, write in and let me know what have you been doing to balance how you feel Because this is an unprecedented time. And also, let me tell you something. Most of my donations this year were direct donations, directly to people in need in my community. And that's by Venmoing, PayPaling, you know, cash apping people who needed it. None of that is considered charity by the government. None of that is is able to be written off on my tax returns, like none of it. So most of my donations are not the type that you can get a tax deduction for. And that's that's the way the cookie crumbles this year. It's been a time unlike any other, but it's also allowed me to let go of the idea that it has to be tax deductible because arguably there are better ways to redistribute your wealth. So I hope that helps, Blanca. Dear Gabby is not necessarily an area in which I solve your problems, but it is an area where I highlight them and allow for other people listening to write in their advice or to just feel seen by your situation. And hopefully you feel seen by having it validated here. Okay. So this is a comment that I really enjoyed that was on my YouTube channel where I posted some videos on the Just Between Us channel, youtube.com slash show, and I talked about relationships and money, and this was a really good comment that I wanted to read. Great episode. This was all excellent advice. The episode, by the way, was with Broke Millennial, Erin Lowry, and there's an episode with her of Bad With Money if you want to search for that. One of the things my partner and I did that has really helped us preempt conflicts over money is to create a proportional taxation system in which we each contribute to a joint checking account each month based on the proportion of our total income we bring home. We budget in all expenses and also fun stuff like eating out and then we split that total based on the income proportion, which determines how much we transfer over at the start of the month. So when we go out, the default is paying from our joint account. 
but we can always choose to pay from our own money if we want to treat the other person without any expectation of reciprocity because sharing expenses proportionally is the default. We call this account our dog's money, quote unquote, to keep it light and fun and to keep us thinking that once it's in the joint account, it is no longer mine and instead is a joint contribution we are both responsible for. For big or unexpected expenses, we do still need to have a conversation, but knowing what the default is, proportional contribution, really helps us to be more open and direct. I love calling it your dog's money. But poor your dog. Your dog didn't want to pay for you to go out to eat. Your dog's probably like, what about my kibble? Okay, here's another really great comment. And this person did actually leave it as a review because I asked them to. I said, I love comments, but I really love Apple reviews with five stars more. And then this person actually did leave it as an Apple review. So honestly, you're my favorite person ever. Their name is Hi My Melody. Great episode. I'm a huge fan of Bad With Money. Yes, I bought that book to proudly support you. Get it, Gabby. Bad With Money book available now at gabbydunn.com slash shop. They didn't write that. I'm just adding that in. Since the podcast helped me create my own narrative and judgment-free dialogue around money, even more important than helping me frame my own open narrative, as opposed to only reacting emotionally to money when confronted, was the unearthing of social and systemic issues surrounding money and culture in relation to our own emotional responses around money. You just summed up the show, Melody. The quickest way, in my opinion, to turn so many people away from self-help books motivational coaches, social media influencers, and general advice is that so many of these approaches completely ignore personal and intergenerational traumas. Well, yes, we will have an episode about that specifically. When this happens, a well-meaning influencer or motivational speaker assumes that their audience is all starting from the same foundation they are. They usually assume that they too are able to speak from this place of trauma since they might have experienced hardships in life as well. While I don't mean to invalidate anyone's hardships, I found that often the advice given from someone who has never questioned their solid foundation or checked to see where others are starting from can just be so off base and almost ridiculing. Bad with money doesn't do that. You strive to understand the imbalances affecting both yourself and others around you. That is so empowering. It is so critical to understand problems that do not affect us personally. Thank you for this holistic, empowering, critical, and curious journey through being bad with money. And then they wrote, looking forward very much to Wednesday, March 31st, 2021, which is when this season started. Oh, that may be my favorite thing anyone's ever written about the show. Thank you so, so, so much. So if you want to submit an email or a question, please write in to GabbyIsBadWithMoney at gmail.com or you can call 844-474-4040 for the hotline. We also pick questions from our Apple reviews. So if you go and review the podcast on Apple and write in a question or write in an experience and you say that it's okay to put it on the podcast, we will read it on the podcast. Also, give a five-star review. (laughs) Thank you. Bad With Money is a production of the Westwood One Podcast Network. Our show is produced and edited by Lindsay Floyd and sound engineered and mixed by Joey Salvia. The supervising producer is Lindsay Floyd and the executive producer is John Wardock. Theme song was performed by Sam Barbera and written by Mike Kaplan, Zach Sherwin, and Jack Dolgen. Additional music by Joey Salvia. I'm Gabby Dunn, and I will talk to you next Wednesday. Dunn.